Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. You know, um, life is complicated sometimes, right? I mean, we got a couple memes out there like this. The more I get confused, the more confused. The more I think, the more I get confused. That's such a cute picture. Makes me want to have grandkids. No pressure. No pressure. Anybody? And there's this one. Why is this so complicated? You know, we can do all these things like have these phasers and blasters and death stars, and we can't figure out the TV remote. It's just the way life is, isn't it? Some things are way too complicated. Life is complex, even with God sometimes. Some days... We, uh, we think God is for us, and there are other days it may feel like God is absent or unconcerned with us. And so we, no matter how much we try, we continue to live at times in our life with a struggle over our trust. We may believe in God, but we struggle to believe if God will make good on His promises. We often ask questions that we spent like last week on, and is, is God really for us? How do we know we can trust Him? Uh, these are the questions Paul pulls in and expands with a really practical application in Romans 9 through 11, where we're at today as we go through the book of Romans. These three chapters, a lot of preachers skip them. Uh, they don't like that some people, people feel like they don't fit with the rest of the book. I actually think they're just this amazingly profound, practical illustration of what Paul's done in the first eight chapters. Others skip it because, well, we're going to get into some really complex t- discussions. If you read it through on your own time, you're going to see him talking about predestination and this term election. If this is the idea, if there is an elect group of people who God has already chosen to be saved, or can we choose our salvation? And Paul brings us some of this stuff up, and, and, and if we get in the weeds of it, it's kind of hard to understand sometimes. Or what about God's sovereignty? How much does God control the details of history? So we choose to be brave souls around here. We consistently do book studies because it forces us to talk about issues that we could easily skip over if we just did topical stuff. We'll still do some topical stuff as well, but let's dive in. And just if you want to, if you have a Bible with you, you can just keep it open. We're going to go through all three chapters. We're going to cover a lot, but I'm going to try to take us through just kind of the overview so we can get rid of some of the bad interpretations and we can really, really understand what Paul is talking about. So Paul spent the first eight chapters showing how God is faithful and truthful, ending with this crescendo declaring that nothing can separate God's love from his people. However, if you understand who this is being written to, any Jew who would have heard this could have been confused or angry because most Jews had not chosen to receive God's love as seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there was a real wrestling going on in the people Paul was writing to among the Jewish Christians who, if you remember at this time, Jewish Christians were by far the majority of the Christians still at this time when Paul writes this letter. So they're wondering if the Old Testament promises of God to the Jews were empty and not true. Whether God had given up on the Jews and just decided to go with plan B and save the Gentiles. Anybody else think God may have ever given up and he's just going to go on and plan B with you as well? I mean, these are crucial questions, right? Because if God failed to keep his promises to the Jews as the ones to whom he would bring the hope of salvation, through whom he would bring the hope of salvation, how do we know God won't fail us too? This is really the core question. 
Although Paul's known for his intellect, he actually begins chapter 9 showing his deep emotion, his grief. He says, I have great sorrow, an unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul loves his people. They're his family. They're his friends. They're his childhood mentors. We might have similar emotions when someone in our family seems disinterested and far from God. We may wonder how come some people can see God at work and yet continue to not want to trust Him for salvation. So Paul struggles with these same questions because Israel had spiritual privileges no one else had, and yet they still rejected God. He shares, he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. God adopted Israel, brought them out of slavery, gave them the law through Moses, which is the clearest reflection of who God's nature, what God's nature is. They hosted the temple where God himself dwelled. Israel experienced miracles, parting of the Red Sea, and lots of other things that other people didn't get to see and experience. Every single Jewish prophet foretold of the coming Messiah. And when Jesus finally came, he was born a Jew, and he focused his ministry on Israel. The Jews were a people of spiritual privilege and calling. A calling was intended to impact the entire world. Paul is saying of all people on earth, the Jews should have recognized Jesus when he came. And yet they didn't. How could they not trust God? Was it God's fault? Did God fail to keep his promises? And Paul's resounding answer is no. He goes on, verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying being an ethnic Israelite doesn't automatically make you God's chosen people. There is ethnic Israel and there is chosen Israel. And he illustrates this pointing to Abraham's son, Isaac, the child of promise, and Ishmael, from whom God showed so clearly how dangerous it is to take matters into your own hands. Paul also highlights Esau and Jacob, where the firstborn didn't get the blessing because God made the decision before they were born that the second child would be the one who was called to show God's promises are not on human lineage or good works. Not all ethnic Jews are included as the chosen people of God because we all enter into God's family by grace through faith. This is where Paul's leading us and trying to explain to us. Therefore, we can trust God as unswerving in his faithfulness to his word and his promises. Paul goes on to another question. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul is pulling into this doctrine that is called election. He's actually going to use the word later. We might not read a lot of it here, but he's going to use the term election. And it's not about voting for presidents. It's, it's, who is, it's describing God's sovereign choice about whom he saves and doesn't save. And this idea doesn't sit well with many people because it sounds like God just picks and chooses who gets saved. And if I'm not one of the elect, then I'm doomed. 
And if God has already decided who is part of the elect and the chosen, predestined to be saved, then I don't need to do anything to help people know God. No need to share my faith. So it kind of leads us to this live and let live kind of attitude. To Paul's question, we'll get back to some of that in a minute. Paul's question, is God unjust or unfair? Well, we've already dealt with Romans 1 through 3 earlier that says basically that all God did was fair and just in that all of us would be left condemned because we chose condemnation. We've all chosen disobedience. The fact that any one of us knows and is saved by God is sheer grace. He goes on in verse 16. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Again, bringing us back to this point of his mercy. It's not like God said, this person over here deserves it more. It's not like he said, this person over here was more sincere, or maybe this one had more potential. And he doesn't ever say, well, you know, they've had a difficult life, and so maybe I'll choose them. Paul's case he's making here is it's not because of our inner goodness. None of us deserves salvation any more than anyone else. He doesn't do any, meeny, miny, mo in his choosing either. God's reason for choosing does not coincide with our goodness. Therefore, none of us can feel superior to anyone else. See, Paul gives this example of Pharaoh in this, in the context. We won't read it all, but who rejected God's command or refused to let the Israelites go? Let's just read a little bit of it in verse 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh's hardness of heart gave God the opportunity to show his power over wickedness and his loving commitment to those who follow him. Let's continue to read because it's going to get really dicey here. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Really? What is the Bible saying about hardening of our hearts? Was Pharaoh a good person, but God turned his heart hard and cold? Is Pharaoh just playing a role he's supposed to play? And if so, how can he be held accountable for that? And I think oftentimes when we deal with election and predestination, we have that same question. If God is the one who is in control of who hears and who believes and in control of everything else, then how can he condemn those of us who are simply playing a role he has assigned us to play? If we're not saved, while it's easy to go down that line of thinking, it's actually not fair to the context of what's being said here to interpret it that way. Let's go back to the story he's referencing, Exodus and Pharaoh. Pharaoh is enslaving and seeking to wipe out the Israelites through infanticide. It's part of the story. In Romans 1.24, Paul talked about how people's hearts are full of lusts and therefore God can give us, if we, if we persist in those lusts, over to our own desires. He gives us over. So God hardening Pharaoh's heart was giving him over to his own stubbornness, his own ego, his own pride. Pharaoh decided to resist God, and God gave Pharaoh what he chose. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, when God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. 
God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. It's their choice. So we see God harden Pharaoh's heart. After, only after, Pharaoh resisted multiple times. Even before the plagues, Pharaoh was resisting God. And then it isn't until the sixth plague that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is attributed not to Pharaoh, but to God. See, God is not to blame for Pharaoh's hard heart. Pharaoh is. Lamenting over the Jews' rejection of him, Jesus shows us God's heart toward those people who have hard hearts. When Jesus cries out, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. It wasn't God. It was the Jews who were not willing. C.S. Lewis likes to comment this, and I think it's really profound. He says, Hell is always a door first locked from the inside. See, God shows great pursuit and great patience, and sinful evil people choose evil and harden our own hearts. Let's take this a little bit further. I think it's really powerfully illustrated in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, Gollum was a hobbit who was changed uh, forever after wearing the ring. You may know the story. Frodo, now the bearer of the ring, had invited Gollum to journey with him to destroy the ring, which was evil intended to be destroyed. Tolkien shared that when he would reread his books, there was one scene that would always make him cry. And it's where Gollum returns to Samwise and Frodo, plotting to betray the young hobbits. But as he returns, if you will recall the scene, both Frodo and Sam are sleeping and, and Gollum's heart has changed when he sees Frodo peacefully dreaming. In that moment, Gollum's corrupted, hardened heart softened with a sense of grace showing us that his heart was not fully vanquished evil yet by then. But in that moment, Samwise, if you recall, Frodo's friend wakes up and mistakes Gollum staring at Frodo for something sinister, and he rebukes Gollum, and the rebuke drove Gollum back into hatred, leaving Gollum's heart never to soften again. Tolkien commented on this scene saying, The tragedy is of Gollum, who at that moment came within a hair of repentance, but for one rough word from Sam. I think here's the point for us all. We don't know how many times our hearts will soften. That's why it's so critical when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit of pulling on your heart to ask for forgiveness from God or for others or to change how you're doing to follow God. We need to be quick to respond. If we keep postponing things thinking, my heart, well, I'll get it right another time. Maybe I'll make it right when I'm older. You may not have that chance. Your heart may harden never to soften again. Paul goes on clarifying this question. He says, did God reject and abandon Israel after all the promises God made? Paul tells them absolutely no, absolutely not. It was Israel who rejected God. How? He begins to explain that in verse 31, that the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. 
They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So what Paul is saying, the Jews would not accept salvation because it was based on grace through faith and they wanted to self-justify themselves through their works and that was what they were trying to do. The Jews wouldn't humble themselves to submit to this undeserved gift to receive God's love and grace by faith. And so they rejected Jesus. The challenge is all of us would do the same without God initiating and helping us have the insight to see the gospel. So Romans 9 is about God's sovereignty in our salvation. As we turn to chapter 10, Paul shifts back the focus on our responsibility in the process of salvation. He starts out saying, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer for God to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So think about this. Paul is praying for the Jews to be saved, yet if they're just all predestined to go to heaven or hell, why is Paul praying? Doesn't make sense, right? I mean, what difference does prayer make if God already made the decision on who's elect and who's not? Paul's actually showing us that prayers are the means by which God works in the lives of others. The Holy Spirit comes to work in the lives of others. So don't stop praying for God to open or soften people's hearts. The Jews were passionate and zealous for their religion. As said above, their focus on works and their refusal to submit to the grace of God was a stumbling block for them. They had 613 Old Testament laws and they developed a whole set of traditions and laws on top of that to make sure they didn't break any of those 613 laws. Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, Paul goes on and says this, for I can testify about them that they are zealous to God, for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not, did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. See, Paul admires their zeal. He's saying these are really sincere people. But their sincerity doesn't save them, nor does sincerity save any of us. Zeal must be attached to the right truths to God. When C.S. Lewis was asked, what's, what's the big difference about Christianity and all the other religions of the world? He said, oh, that's simple. It's grace. We, we obey in gratitude and love for the God who saved us, not to gain his favor. See, Paul talks about this grace and how it shows God's desire for everyone to be, be saved. He talks about that in this context, but he, he does it in a little bit of a more convoluted way. So we're actually going to turn to Peter for a moment because Peter says the same thing Paul says more simply. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So if we have thoughts like, I must not be the elect because my faith is so weak or I struggle so much with sin, you can be assured God is for you. He wants a relationship with you. And the good work He has started in you, He will continue and He will finish it. Just like He will for the Jews. God will follow through on His promises. Paul pushes back even more on the common concerns regarding God's elect. In it, we see that God's salvation leads to the most inclusive community ever. 
Now, that's a big word, especially in our culture today. As Scripture says it in verse 11, he says, Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ethnicity, education, morality makes no difference. Because everyone who calls on God's name will be saved. Now some of you may hear that and go, well, that sounds like exclusive stuff, right? Because we're saying there's only one way to be saved. Well, let's just be honest. Every religion claims, every religious claim made in the world is inherently exclusive. If we say, I think good people of every religion should go to heaven. Now that sounds inclusive, but you've actually, you've actually excluded bad people. And who are the bad people? Racists? Child molesters? I mean, no one says to a rapist, you choose your truth and I respect that. We don't say that. We say what they did was wrong. We all have a list of good and bad. We all have an exclusive boundary that we set somewhere. Yet the fascinating thing is the gospel Jesus offers is a very different kind of exclusivity. The gospel teaches us that it teaches us that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us. God gives salvation as a gift to all who repent and receive him as their Lord. We receive his forgiveness with humility, knowing it is gift. It is not earned. I could never earn it. There is nothing I could do to be good enough for it. The gospel actually then promotes inclusivity, which is why Christianity has produced the most demographically inclusive community the world has ever known. If you just honestly study Islam, it is still predominantly Arab because to become Muslim, you basically have to begin to become in some way culturally Arab. Buddhism and Hinduism are branching out, yet they're still predominantly East and South Asia. Christianity is evenly split between Europe, North America, Latin America, Asia, Africa, the entire world. It's growing fastest in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, including some areas we thought were completely closed and hostile to the gospel. God's desire is for all to be saved. Now, Paul goes on to begin to tell us our role in salvation is salvation is about us believing. That's the only thing we have in it. Do we believe this gift of God to us? We've talked a lot about Martin Luther. I love him. He's an amazing person in history. He worked really hard. You know the story. He worked really hard to earn his salvation by staying up all night repenting and whipping his body for the sins he committed until he understood Romans. Until he finally understood that salvation came from simply believing Jesus paid the price for our sin. Religious leaders of his day threatened Luther with claim about these claims because they wanted the church to control people's behavior by controlling their salvation. So they demanded Luther retract his statements that Paul shared here in Romans 10, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a centerpiece to Luther's statements. 
You may remember the story of Cardinal Caetan, a religious leader, threatened to imprison Luther and burn him at the stake if if Luther did not recant his teachings that salvation came from just believing the word of the gospel. At the trial, Caetan told Luther that he could walk free if he would just utter one little word, revico, meaning I recant. Caetan said, just one little word will save you, Martin Luther. And Luther responded, this much I know. I would be the most beloved person in Europe if I were to say the, empire, say the simple word revico. But how can I deny the power through which I have been made a Christian? If you remember Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he had to have been thinking of Caetan when he wrote it. Remember the words? It says, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Instead of saying, Rebico, I recant, Luther said one word, credo, which means I believe. Luther was saying, even if Rebico, I recant, frees me from your prison and the stake, I believe connects me to the power of God. One little word, credo, I believe, connects us to the power and salvation of God, and it destroys evil in our lives and the world around us. We don't get hung up on whether you prayed the printer's sinner's prayer just right with the right language or was your faith strong enough and we certainly don't need to get caught into did I feel bad enough about my sins long enough in order to be able to ask forgiveness and be forgiven. I believe means we trust our whole self to the person and work of Christ who is our righteousness. This faith is not a general belief that Jesus lived. It's not a general faith in his wise teachings. We believe means we trust in his death and resurrection for us, for me, for you. We trust our entire life to him. See, I don't think we realize what we're saying when we say, I believe, and what that can do. Saying, I believe, brings the power of salvation into your life. The power of God for healing. The power of God to walk through difficult things. To strengthen your soul when you're discouraged and tired. I would encourage all of us to speak out more often what we believe, that when we are overwhelmed by circumstances, that we start saying, I believe God is for me, so who can be against me? We start saying more regularly, out loud, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Give voice to your beliefs. See, Paul continues his logic, culminating with the role we play in helping others also believe in Christ. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. See, we, the church, are entrusted with this gospel message. We owe it to those around us who do not know, have not heard, to bring the gospel to them. And I know it's difficult time in our culture, probably more difficult than it's ever been to share the gospel. Our culture displays such disillusionment and animosity towards Christianity. It's not easy necessarily to share our faith. Yet Paul goes on and says, how then can they call on one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in one whom they have not heard about? 
And how can they hear without someone telling them? See, Paul is saying someone must share the message in order for them to benefit from it. Paul goes on in verse 17 that the only way for faith to grow up and mature in our heart is for faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard for the word about Christ. To know that we can never be separated from His love. Every single person needs to hear that. Paul is saying there's something about the word spoken. We see an example of this in Acts 10. Cornelius, a God-fearing centurion of the Italian regiment, has a vision of God saying, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send me to Joppa, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is also called Peter. And so you know, this angel is basically telling him, Go get Peter. He'll tell you what to do. He'll, 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 he'll help you understand this whole thing. So Peter comes and explains the gospel, saying all the prophets testify about, about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Notice, Peter didn't say, Cornelius, God has noticed you're a good guy. You're already, he's already accepted you. You're saved. No, Peter said, you must now believe in Jesus. You need to repent and then you'll receive the forgiveness of sins through his name. It is necessary to hear the message of the gospel to receive forgiveness. The gospel comes through people telling us about it, telling others about it. Because think about it. Why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius all he needed to know? He knew, right? It would have been more time efficient to do that. But no, the angel told Cornelius to go get Peter. God works through you and me. We may sometimes wonder why, but that's the way he's chosen to do it. So who is God highlighting to you as a person he's working in and wanting to work in, you, work in that you need to share God's love and gospel with? I mean, one-third of the world on, on earth claims to be Christian, but that still leaves about 4.5 4, 4. billion people who say they're not a Christian. We are sent to the people. You are sent to the people in your life. You are where you are around certain people for a reason. The people in your life, need to, you need to show them and speak to them the gospel. One way you can do that, September 13th, we're starting another round of Alpha here on Monday nights. And it's just a great course. We've had a number of people go through it and make decisions to follow Jesus. It's a great course for people who aren't sure of their faith. It's designed for them. So you can invite and begin praying now for your friends to want to go to that. And better yet, why don't you come with them to the 8 to 13 weeks that we're going to be together and just be there with them as a way to build that relationship and be the one sharing the gospel with them. i got to tell you, I've been really impressed lately with some of the Olympic athletes who are being so vocal and proud about their faith in Christ. Caleb Dressel, who won five gold medals, said about the Christian faith, it's the reason I'm in the sport, not just to go fast times, but to inspire people and show them where I find my happiness with what's God, what God's given me. Previous to that, Dressel said one of his favorite Bible verses is Isaiah 40, 31. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, which inspired him to get a big tattoo of an eagle on his arm. 
Sydney McLaughlin won the gold medal for the women's 400-meter hurdles, saying, I'm giving glory to God. When she set the world record back in June, which she broke her own record again in the Olympics, I no longer, she said, I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything, but by grace, through faith, Jesus has given me everything. She went on to say, records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. Thank you, Father. More than ever, we need to put words to our faith today. Finally and briefly, let's get through chapter 11. Now, those who do speak on Romans often skip chapters 9 through 11, and those who usually do 9 through 11 usually skip chapter 11, but we're going to take a quick look at it. Paul's purpose was to refocus on the Jews. He wrestles yet again with these questions. If God failed them, how can we be sure he won't fail us too? He begins saying, I asked them, did God reject his people? And he says, by no means. God's not done with Israel. In verse 11, he says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And I think this passage is really insightful for those of us who have friends who seem to continue to have hard hearts toward God. And God is sometimes using people to make them envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So Gentiles came to faith because of the rich heritage of the Jews. And Paul makes that clear when he describes how Gentiles, he uses an image of being grafted into a tree whereby we inherit the promises given to Abraham because we have the faith of Abraham. Paul talks about how God is able to graft them, the Jews, in who have still not received Christ again. Even though they've been rejected because they have not received him, he still intends to graft them in. God will use, Paul is saying, Gentile believers to make the Jews jealous. Now, this isn't a negative, selfish envy. Imagine it this way, that your teenage children leave your home and they don't want to come back. They refuse to come back. In the meantime, you take in homeless and foster kids, and it's Christmas morning, and your kids who are left, who have left unbeknown to you are standing outside, staring in through the window from outside, watching all these other kids eating yummy food, gathered around the tree with presents, really enjoying themselves. And your kids are saying, I miss being in that relationship. I miss having all of that. Paul says at some point that Israel as a nation will come back to God, and in this way all Israel will be saved. One of the things this tells us is never, ever give up on the people in your lives. Paul wrote how the Jews continue to reject the gospel, but Paul doesn't give up hope on them. Who are the people you are tempted to give up on? One of your kids? Is it a family member, a co-worker, or a particular people group? Never give up is the message. Finally, Paul is not only encouraging us to speak our faith, but we need to show the gospel by how we live. So many people come to faith in the early church, especially by how they saw Christians living and loving, and it made them envious, which leads us to ask ourselves, could someone look at my life and clearly see and come to envy the benefits of the gospel I enjoy? Now, one of the ways this has been misinterpreted is we often think like, well, I just have to be morally superior and better, and that's what they're going to envy us. That's not at all it. That's not the gospel. 
It doesn't necessarily mean that they envy that your morality is better than them. What they will envy is that you have a level of love and acceptance and peace, even in the midst of your brokenness, that God is continuing to work through you and give you purpose and do good things through your life, and he's bringing healing to your life. They need to envy the gospel, not your moral superiority. That's a lot of content, right? Thanks for hanging in there. So how do we walk this out? Come on, the worship team. I think there's three uh, big points that we can identify that can help us walk this out. First, rest in the assurance that God desires a relationship with you. He's always pursuing that in you. And he is invested in finishing the work he started in you even more than you want that work finished. So rest in that. Bask in that. Second, take some time to ask the Holy Spirit where your heart needs to soften and open yourself to Him and allow the Holy Spirit to come in and take some of those relationships where your heart in or those areas where you're bitter at God or frustrated with God and allow the Holy Spirit to come in and begin to soften your heart. And third, who is God highlighting to you, letting you know that He is working in that person's life and He wants you to be a part of loving them and sharing the gospel with them? Ask him how you can share that gospel this week. Would you stand with me as we pray? Holy Spirit, I am just so grateful for the way you inspire the word for us, for the way you uh, work through imperfect people to write such profound truth. Do you ask questions in, your, in, your, in the text that we, answer, that we ask all the time and struggle with and that you give us a way through it, Lord, to see how good you are, how powerful you are, how intently you pursue us, that your intent is for everyone to save, be saved, and that you make that so simple for us. We just have to say, yes, God, I want to follow you. I want you to change my life. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come to each one of us, that we would encounter even in this moment and throughout this week, more so the gospel. And that you would also open our eyes that we can see how we get to share it with others and be a part of the joy of seeing others experience how much God loves them. So Lord, as we turn our hearts to you with this song of worship, would you just receive our hearts and our voices and would you be glorified in our midst? Would your presence come and do your good work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.